welcome to Noisy Fulfillment, a Desperate Housewives rewatch podcast where we take you back in time episode by episode of ABC's Desperate Housewives. If you love what we're doing and would like to support us further than just as a listener, which we absolutely thank you for, you can really help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star review and subscribing to this podcast. That really helps people to find us because analytics equals search results. We'll also read it on the air, so if you love to hear stuff you've written on the air, here's your chance. Also, you can become a patron by contributing at any monetary level by going to anchor.fm slash noisyfulfillment. You can also buy us a virtual coffee by tipping us in our virtual tip jar at ko-fi.com slash noisyfulfillment. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash noisyfulfillment where you can comment on stuff, react to stuff, and also message us. You can also email us at noisyfulfillment at gmail.com. Hello and welcome back to Noisy Fulfillment, a Desperate Housewives rewatch podcast where we take you back in time episode by episode of ABC's Desperate Housewives. I am Rachel Warren and today I'm here with a very special guest uh, filling in for Amanda Baum today, hot off his very successful Frasier podcast we are listening. The amazing Will is here. Will, welcome to Noisy Fulfillment. Thank you so much for having me. That's a very lovely introduction. I don't know how much I've earned of that there, but uh, no, really, really great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for agreeing to do this with me and for muddling through all of this with me through my struggle to understand time zones during daylight savings time here in the US. It's a nightmare over here, honestly. Like, I don't know, we still do it after all these years. There's talk of getting rid of it, but it is it never changes in my in my house and my family every year. We don't quite know whether we're coming or going, so don't apologize. Well, thank you again. We're so happy to have you. So the question we like to ask all guests <laughs> is, what is your Desperate Housewives origin story? How did you watch the show? When did you watch it? Tell us all the things. So you'll have to bear with me a little bit because my Desperate Housewives kind of knowledge and fandom is, is a little bit sporadic. But um, I kind of growing up, my brother was a huge fan of it. And I remember seeing it. It was very big in, in the UK. It was it aired on Channel 4, kind of prime time of an evening. Um, and I remember a lot of people watching it. Um, and I probably wasn't quite the right age to appreciate it. And it's just something I kind of grew up and, and, and didn't hear much about for years. And then, I don't know, about two or three years ago, it might have been kind of when lockdown first hit, actually. Um, a lot of people were going back to nostalgic you know, media um, at that time. And my brother was just kind of talking to me about how he'd started rewatching Desperate Housewives. And my brother's like seven years older than me. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, there's, there's something about it I, I think I'd really enjoy. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And yeah, during like the first lockdown, I kind of blitzed through it. And I got to like all the all the way to the end of season three, I think, in a matter of well, maybe a month or so. And then I don't know, other shows got in the way and other pressures and kind of professional stuff. And I just kind of left it by the wayside a little bit. Um, and it's a show that I've been really meaning to come back to and pick up again for so long. Um, and kind of haven't got around to doing that yet. But yeah, it's kind of like a show that I, so many mutuals in my life love and my brother loves it. And um, my girlfriend, um, who I didn't know when I first started watching this, she loves it as well. And um, yeah, it's just kind of like all fall into place, really. It's a show that I was always meant to watch in some way, I think. Um, and though I haven't finished it, I'm very much a fledgling compared to you. Um, I will get there soon, I'm sure. Awesome. So along with your co-host, Key, you host a podcast called We're Listening, which is a rewatch experience of Frasier. And we will put that in the show notes for anybody who's living under a rock and hasn't already heard it. <laughs> you know how much I love it. And I never miss it. What has that experience been like for you? Amazing, to be honest. Um, I, I just remember this is a Frasier podcast is something I'd wanted to do um, for, for years. And then I know it was the beginning of, of 20, 20, yeah, 2020, and I kind of put a tweet out just saying, I think I'm going to finally do it and start a Frasier podcast. Yeah, would anyone actually listen to this? And then Key, who, as obviously anyone who listens knows, and of course you know, one of my oldest friends, you know, I've known him since primary school, since we were like four or five years old. Um, we spoke sporadically um, every now and then on kind of social media and stuff, but we didn't have much chance to see each other at that point. And he just dropped me a message and said, if you ever want any help with it, you know, let me know. And I was like, I wonder if Key's angling here to, to maybe co-host in some way. And I was like, well, I need a co-host if this is going to be any good, Key. You know, would you want to do it with me? He's like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so we just kind of started that up on a whim, really, as a little hobby. Never in a million years thought anyone would listen to it. Um, and if we did get any listeners, we thought maybe five to ten a week or something. And we'd be really content with that. Um, 
and it's just ended up becoming like one of the most rewarding things I do in my my personal time. Um, but yeah, that I've ever done really. Um, and I think it's its success has just been down to a really lovely fan base that are just so communicative and are always getting in touch with us. And um, there's a lot of just so much generosity and warmth there. And I just think people that like Frasier just tend to be you know good people that you want around so it's uh it's kind of the perfect audience to have a podcast for i think well it's just a phenomenal podcast and yes you have really built a sense of community around that podcast which is great for sure yeah that's really one of the best things about it that community Yes, and I love the famous last words. If you want any help with that, please let me know. I do believe something similar was said by Amanda, and then I roped her into maybe a five-year commitment. So I'm glad to see I wasn't the only one who took someone very seriously when they offered to help. Awesome. So let's go ahead and move into the episode. Today we are breaking down episode 11, season one, Move On, written by David Schuler, who has done some other things that I've liked, including Kings, which was totally underrated, so much so that I think it got canceled after the sixth episode and I had to buy the DVD to finish it, but also wrote for Everwood and New Amsterdam, both of which have enjoyed some level of success and directed by John David Coles of Sex in the City, Law and Order, West Wing, other things that we've heard of, Homeland, House of Cards. So incredibly successful director. And in our first lines, we have Mary Ellis saying that Edie Britt could never understand why she didn't have any female friends. And I feel like this is a familiar refrain that I've heard other women say before, that they just don't understand why they don't have any female friends. And it's very apparent to me in the ways in which Edie has trouble bonding with women and why she relates better to men. But of course, she always tried to tell herself that she didn't need any female friends. But who she found as a female friend was Martha Hoover. All of these other women were keeping her at arm's length, but Martha Hoover is there for her, Hoover is there for her, even if it's only mm. there to insult her. <laughs> Yeah, it's like this vaguely manipulative relationship that they're in. Yeah, kind of like Edith, Edie exists to kind of, yeah, as a, as a, as a, what's the word, kind of a scratching post for Martha in some ways. She said that, that within the first five minutes of meeting her, she insulted everything about her from her makeup to yeah, her taste yeah. in men. But maybe what it was is that she was so grateful to have any female friend around. She didn't matter how abused she was by it, which is pretty sad. It's really sad, yeah, because Edie's obviously, you know, she's someone who loves men, you know, and she kind of says that, she's very open about that, but she's also very much like a girl's girl in the way she socializes and kind of her her mannerisms and habits and stuff, so although she's the character you kind of love to hate in some way, she she has an empathetic side here and you do kind of feel sorry for her a little bit. And she definitely cares about Martha very deeply. And she'll later say that her last exchange with Martha, their words were in anger and she's deeply saddened by this. And it's this moment when she's being vulnerable and relatable. But then she immediately turns to the officer for comfort in this damsel of distress, problematic way that is just so very characteristic of her. But she does genuinely relate and care about Martha. And this really is a huge loss for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love that the symmetry between when she kind of grabs the, who is it? Who is it? She hugs in that little ceremony, the detective. And then, um, is it, is it Susan saying, you know, remarkable or it might be, um, Gabby, you know, she makes it all about her. And then later in the woods, you know, with the little swish of the jumper, she's kind of saying it back. Susan, amazing. You always make it about yourself. Um, so there's just, yeah, there's a real nice kind of repartee, I guess, between, between herself and the other Wisteria Lane women. And it's such a quick back and forth because Edie really does act as a character foil to all of them in a certain way, but especially for Susan, who she participates in this love triangle with, first with Mike and then with Carl, and ultimately later with different husbands or (laughs) ex-lovers of the women on Wisteria Lane. Yeah, yeah. Adding to the problem (laughs) of other women not liking her and coming to be the running joke that if you're done with your husband or boyfriend, give it a minute and Edie will find them. Having said that, one of the reasons I was most eager to have you on at this point is that this is the first appearance we have of Felicia Tillman, who is played by Harriet Sampson Harris, who also played the character of Bibi on Frasier. Absolutely, yeah. That, that sounds right to me. So when we meet Felicia Tillman, 
She's come to Wisteria Lane because her sister, Martha Huber, was supposed to come visit her and never arrived. Felicia is greeted by Edie, and Edie makes the comment that she doesn't see any family resemblance, and Felicia says, oh, it will become apparent. And we see that the family resemblance comes in the form of how Felicia describes Martha Huber, her sister, who is missing, as a wretched pig of a woman, and that the day she died, this world became a better place. I mean, Edie's kind of, yeah, her empathy here is surprising, but she's really trying at least to kind of extend, you know, some sympathy. And, and Felicia's like, no, you know, this is this is great, really, you know, that the world is rid of this woman. Um, and I think immediately there's a simpatico with, with Bibi and her, remor- you know, her lack of remorse. And I think when she steps out of that cab on Wisteria Lane for the first time, I'm expecting to hear that kind of devilish drawl of, of Bibi's. Um, and like, although it's kind of restrained, you can hear like in, in Harriet's acting that kind of persona reaching out, you know, towards the surface a little bit, I think. Yes, she is just so perfectly cast for this role, similar to Bibi and Frasier, where she's all smiles but no warmth. Yeah, completely. You couldn't imagine anyone delivering this quite as well. After the cold open, we see dozens of neighbors have gathered at Mrs. Hoover's house to distribute those missing persons flyers. Edie addresses the crowd, as we've already kind of addressed, and Gabby is really the first to say how creepy is Mrs. Hoover's sister. And it's this moment where we're almost instructed to be watchful and distrustful of Felicia, even though we really don't get too much more from her character in this episode except for the moment where Paul, of all people, says that everyone on Wisteria Lane is hoping for your sister's safe return. And she says, no, I, I doubt that. Yeah. She just she just knows, isn't she, the energy immediately from when she gets there. She's like, I know my sister. I know what you'll probably really think of her. And I think there's something kind of sinister about the fact that she already knows. There's a foresight. And just like Martha with the faux pleasantness that I'm smiling at you while I blackmail you and commit extortion. Yeah. It is the kind of kill them with kindness, isn't it? Completely personified, yeah. Oh. Well, we move on to Rex at the hospital following his heart attack, and Bree and her children are fighting. Bree says she has no intention of letting her Rex back into their home, nor does she plan to care for him. Andrew gets in a few good shots about being excited for the day that he'll be able to put her into a home. And Brie, wise back, says, (laughs) I'm planning to die young. Andrew says, we're all pulling for you. But in the meantime, you need to care for my father unless you can give me a really good reason that you have for abandoning him. And Brie won't budge. But in the end, Brie does agree to care for Rex. Mm. But she won't tell Andrew why she is reluctant to do so. She also says that once she gets him healthy, he can rot in hell for all she cares, which is sort of contradictory and a bit counterintuitive to go through all the work of healing someone just so that they can die of their own accord, but at least they're no longer your responsibility and you're free. Yeah, but that is Brie, and she is in pain. Yeah, like, she's trying to protect him in some ways, and she's so proud and house-proud and family-proud that I get why she doesn't doesn't want to give Andrew kind of all of this ammunition. Um, And, you know, obviously, it's been a while since I've seen the show, and I've not seen it in its entirety, but their relationship is so fraught, and you come to, at least in the episodes I saw, really dislike Andrew and the way he treats her. Um, But yeah, it's like, she doesn't want to disclose all of that information, but she still has her fun with the way she's kind of teasing Rex and and rubbing George in her face. And yeah, so it is a contradiction, I think, for sure. And I so get that Brie wants to protect some level of marital privacy between herself and Brie, and she doesn't want to divulge his infidelity to their children in Mm -hmm. an effort to avoid the children having negative feelings for their father. And apparently she's willing to have them be mad at her for kicking him out of the house without an explanation So it even seems to suggest that it's more important to her to protect her children's opinion of Rex than their opinion of her. And that's particularly interesting to examine from a woman who wants every opinion of her to be high. And their relationship is just so contentious. Yeah, tempestuous at best. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, these relationships have earned their therapist a great deal of money. 
Yeah, these variously Freudian family encounters, yeah. We're at Gabby's house, and she's ticked off that there is no money, and there's nothing the lawyer can do about it. Carlos has been importing goods from slave labor, and they've frozen all of their accounts, and the lawyer says it would be really helpful if Gabby could find that passport. And obviously, we know that Gabby's not going to find the passport because she's burned it. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten like th- this whole subplot when I was rewatching this episode. And yeah, like, th- why does she? I mean, I don't want to skip ahead to the review, um, you know, into the episode. Obviously, we know this changes later. Um, but it's again like the paradox and the the hypocrisy with Brie. Obviously, the the women in the show are constantly changing how they feel about the men in their lives, their relationships, and you know, we see Gabby go through a very similar kind of process in this episode as well. Um but yeah, like I remember I remember that burning and that kind of, you know, she wants him to suffer that hatred she's kind of channeling in those earlier episodes. Yeah. We've talked a lot in this podcast about the relationship between Gabby and Carlos being somewhat transactional. And apparently part of this transaction is in order for him to be suffering in jail not being able to get bail she doesn't have access to their funds and to point out that the lawyer says you might think about getting a job to which her maid laughs yes that's such a kind of snide little like you can almost blink and you you miss it but it's so good and then the maid gives some helpful advice saying why don't you hawk some of your jewelry you have so much of it and most of it's ugly anyway (laughs) yes so it's such a burn I suppose we have to consider that the maid might not be getting paid soon if these accounts don't unfreeze or Gabby doesn't get a job. So she has a vested interest there. Yeah, I think so. I think it's fair to say that. Over at Susan's, Mike is visiting and Carl arrives, her ex-husband, with some tax documents that Susan needs to sign as they begin talking about Julie's birthday party. And Carl reveals that he and Brandy have broken up because Carl caught Brandy in bed with someone else. And I think it's just a really good time to pause there. Yeah, it's kind of a beautiful irony. And I think, you know, Susan does kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, you know, I I genuinely do feel bad that you've gone through this. And Susan isn't anywhere near as vindictive as some other characters on this show. So there is definitely a truth in that. But also, like, you think she's probably dancing, you know, really, really hard in her internally, at least, hearing that news, I think. There's just a sweet justice there. It would be weirder if she didn't find some level of justice in this because it would be hard not to harbor resentment over how their marriage deteriorated and now she has someone standing on her doorstep angling for an invitation to his own daughter's birthday party and she's in just the right position to kick him while he's down but that's not Susan's way or at least it's not her way right now and perhaps that has something to do with the budding relationship with Mike going really well but regardless she reluctantly invites him to go to the birthday party. Yeah, and it is, a, it is a kind invitation and like a an olive branch. And you can just see Carl is so desperate to snatch that with both hands. But we, obviously, we you know, the dramatic irony being later in the in the episode, we find out, you know, there's still more layers to Carl's various debauchery. But uh, there is just something so compelling to me about Carl. There is a charisma there, despite like his many, many flaws. And I just think he's a great comic relief character. I think it was incredibly fair to use the term comic relief because he's just such a great example of the archetypal buffoon, whether he is deeper and more complicated later. But right now he just feels (laughs) that he just feels like the kind of comic relief that we need. And while he seems to want this moment to be a bit warmer than it really is, Susan, Susan shuts that down right away, telling him he should go home and rip up some pictures, which I'm sure we can assume was one of her coping mechanisms in the past. Yeah. Over at Lynette and Tom's house, things are going better now that they have employed the use of what they're calling a nanny. However, I would call Claire an au pair since she lives there. Is there a word that's more fairly defined this concept in Britain because I feel like in the US we throw out these terms like they're interchangeable but they actually are very different yeah au pair is definitely a term that's used here in the UK although that's typically something very middle class um, kind of you know I guess a nanny is too in some ways but yeah there's no one in kind of my immediate life or vicinity that I've ever been raised by one or have had experience of one but yeah nanny isn't really a term that ever gets used here unless it's specifically to like someone's 
you know, grandmother, basically. Oh, that's fair. We call our grandmothers nannies in this country, too. Um, Nonetheless, so Lynette and Tom are in bed, and Lynette is making her to-do list on the back of a a missing persons flyer for Martha Huber. (laughs) So disrespectful, but, like, yeah, just typical of this of, of these women in this show it's great when lynette asks tom if he's made the coffee he says no so she says well don't you think you should and he's not wanting to get out of bed eventually he does it reluctantly but he runs into claire who was washing her robe and is therefore standing in the kitchen naked it's just uh, just this whole exchange just tom's face is like a child on christmas morning like he's just he cannot move from the stairs like the the right thing to do is to turn away like she has and for them both to speak yeah they both need to speak back to back like she's done or she just needs to recede into the darkness of the living room um but instead we just have tom's eyes like two kind of disco balls glowing in his head <laughs> and as you said Clara's turned around but tom hasn't so that just means tom is getting to see the other side of her exactly and he's not rushing back upstairs, but when he finally does, he is no longer tired. He's wide awake and compelled to have sex with Lynette, and it just makes me want to hurt him. Oh, the ways I want to hurt him. There, there, there are many. <laughs> and if I'm Lynette, I now have some questions about why my husband was basically sleepwalking his way to the kitchen, and now he's back and ready for action. Yeah, like from her point of view, he he has crept down the stairs and then kind of 20 seconds later or so, he's back in and he's really amorous all of a sudden. And yeah, I just, I, I, would, I, I think she would have questions. Like something's not quite right here, unless he's just drained a massive mug of coffee and he's suddenly got loads of energy, you know. I don't know how we're meant to buy it. And of course, those questions do get answered. The next morning, Lynette is paying the bills and she's checking things off her to-do list and she looks so happy and then she puts together the pieces that tom saw claire naked and that's what prompted the attention from tom which is really both infuriating and somewhat heartbreaking for lynette who thought her husband just really wanted her that there had been this catalyst for that desire yeah, it's just the way the penny drops. He's like, you know, when when did this take place, Claire? She's like, oh, you know, I think he was coming down for coffee. And it's just like, you know, it's, you can see how upsetting that would be for Lynette. Like, it's just it's just not what you want to hear first thing in the morning. Especially, as you say, she's feeling so good about this kind of renewed energy in their relationship. And now it's kind of, you know, undercut. Yes, what has been this incredible feeling of being desired by your husband so much in the middle of the night really puts a kibosh on that feeling and if you thought that having a nanny was helpful (laughs) because you're able to reinvest in your relationship because you're not so exhausted now you're realizing maybe there are negative things sparked by having an attractive nanny Gabby decides that she probably does need to get a job. So she starts looking into a modeling agent and she learns that the opportunities for models in suburbia are somewhat limited. There is a car demonstration at the mall, which she wants to pass on until she learns that the only other option is to be a sci-fi warrior princess. I mean, given these two options, do you have a preference, Rachel, of which you would have picked? Does one sound more enjoyable than the other? Is death an option? (laughs) Um, I'm thinking that as a warrior princess, I will probably see less people that I know because people that I tend to know tend to frequent the mall more than they would frequent a place where there would be a sci-fi princess. I think that's as good as a logic as any. And I think maybe... With a bit more foresight, Gabby would probably do the same because the mole in in the area, she knows she's going to bump into people she knows, especially she kind of readily admits she frequents them all a lot. So, you know, it's kind of like stepping into the uh, the devil's lair dressed in, in her blue dress. Were you at all amazed at how much Gabby had previously made when she was modeling? She said she would make $10,000 a day and even for 2000 that's pretty damn good money. And in today's money in America, that would be around $13,500 for a day's worth of work, which is certainly more than I'm getting paid today. 
it, it's absolutely crazy. Like the guy, you know, this this head of this small age, he's like, yeah, you're not going to make that here. You know, that's not going to happen here. I'm the only guy in a hundred mile radius. Um, like that's just crazy money, absolutely crazy. And if she's getting three hundred dollars a day now for the for the Buick, is it Lacrosse, Latour? I can never quite remember the Buick Lacrosse. So it's very very different um, to to her Milan and, and Paris days. So I guess I didn't put this into perspective, but that is about a $30,000 car. So it's not necessarily a cheap car by any means, but it's not an Aston Martin. It's not the Maserati that she's driving around. And it would have been about three days worth of work for Gabby to buy that car. Yeah, there's, there's definitely an irony at play for sure. <laughs> Over at Rex and Bree's, Rex expresses gratitude that Bree has both decided to care for him and that she hasn't shared tales of Rex's infidelity with their children. And Bree says that that gratitude doesn't mean anything to her because she doesn't feel anything for him anymore. To which Rex says that that can't possibly be true. Look at the way you made this tray for me. You used the good china. You picked fresh flowers. This tray was made with love. And Bree says that Rex should not mistake her anal retentiveness for genuine affection. And I just wish my comebacks were as quick and clever as Bree's are. Yeah, I, I love that. Like you're using the good china, freshly pressed napkins, flowers in the garden. It's like he's just he's sitting there, kind of infirm, trying to kind of yeah snatch something back of this relationship, and he's just he knows it's a fool's errand. Like it's it's gone. The candle has been blown out. Um, and Breeze, although she's hurting, is having a little bit of fun. I think in this episode with the way she's dangling the fine china in front of his face, and then it's not for him. Yeah. Yes, and the quickness of the writing and the dialogue, those burns that Brie is doling out the level of insult I just have to kind of aspire to that and at the same time Rex is so incredibly vulnerable here in a way that we haven't seen yeah and like it, that just kind of really exacerbates as you say those barbs those Brieisms that are just so cutting normally but now he's kind of really laying how he feels bare and he knows he's he's made a huge mistake and just yeah Brie is is reveling in in that pain in some way I think um and kind of getting getting her kicks Earlier in the season, I felt like Rex was getting all the shots in and Brie was just kind of helpless and vulnerable. And so it's nice to see her have these kinds of comebacks a little bit later. Yeah, for sure. It's good to see the pendulum swing back in in her direction, I think. Over at Susan's, she and Mike are making out when Susan catches a glimpse of the Martha Huber flyer and turns it over before she can resume making out with Mike. And in this moment, apparently it is the first time that Mike says, I love you to Susan, to which Susan is really caught unaware and says, well, that's just great. And without getting too personal into the real world, is there a longer pregnant pause than after saying those words for the first time? Yeah, like I couldn't help but think of, um, I won't dwell on this, but we, we have exchanges like this in Frasier where Roz has, has said it in, you know, in the throes of passion and then she gets really angry when the man hasn't said it back and Frasier's like, there are no more emotionally charged words than, than I love you. And Susan's kind of experiencing that here. And then Mike, quick as a flash, is like, well, you know, it's fine. You know, you've got, you've got other issues. And, and she's like, hang on, what kind of issues have I got? Like, he doesn't handle the, the rejection very well, I don't think. Well, that absolutely segues perfectly into Susan saying, yeah, well, what other issues do I have? And Mike says, well, your divorce left you kind of vulnerable. And then Carl shows up. Maybe that's bringing up some issues for you. And Susan wants no part in hearing that her inability to say I love you to Mike has anything to do with Carl. It has nothing to do with Carl. Do you think that that Mike has a point? I think I don't. I don't think Mike from from if, if I was imagining Mike's perspective, I don't think he's seen enough of of her reaction and the way she is with Carl to make those judgments. I think he's feeling a little bit kind of machismo. He's feeling a little bit territorial. Carl, he's a big guy like Mike. He's arrived on the scene, an ex-flame. I think he's probably just, maybe this is a little bit of jealousy coming through here for me. Um, I don't know if he knows as much as we do as an audience to maybe make these kinds of claims. Um, but Susan, Susan's relationship with Carl is complicated. So maybe, maybe, maybe Mike doesn't quite know it yet, but maybe he's onto something. I don't know. Susan is certainly defensive about this, and she's now going to say that Carl 
is coming to this birthday party and she is going to demonstrate to Mike her complete lack of love for him, her complete disdain for Carl, and Mike will have a front row seat to see how very little she cares about Carl whatsoever. And that regardless of what's going on between Mike and Susan, Susan not being able to reciprocate those words of love for Mike has nothing to do with Carl. Over at the pharmacy, Bree is talking to George, the pharmacist, about Rex's condition, and George says that Rex is going to need constant care. Bree just happens to be surrounded by all of these men at the pharmacies with female caretakers, and statistically, this is a gendered labor more likely to affect women in caregiving positions. And Brie just cannot see her future as being a caregiver to Rex, and particularly because he's broken her heart, and it's very hard for her to give care to him. Yeah, I think that's such an alarming moment. She turns around, just like you know, the the the, the voiceover saying, you know, um, the words "constant care" echoing in her head, and seeing those reminders of what her life could become. You know, she's still she's still a young woman. Um, I completely understand her impulse now to turn to George and and ask what she asks. Absolutely. And so when Brie asks George, do you want to go on a date? And George says, but aren't you married? And she looks down at her ring and says, oh, yeah, well, we're separated. Yeah. She just completely kind of forgets. She's like, oh, yeah, my husband. Like, was that right? It's like, it's just like convenient. Like, let's just forget about Rex. Come on a date with me. Like, I'm not becoming this constant carer. And for Brie, part of that must be that if she has to give constant care for the immediate future to this person who she really cannot stand being around anymore, then there needs to be an outlet for her. And maybe going on dates is going to be part of her outlet. If she has to take care of this person that she has very little sympathy for at this point, you have to have that person in your life. How am I going to offset what it is costing me in my emotional capital? I'll go on dates. And George is happy to go on a date with her. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, he is. And I think you, you kind of get the impression he's been he's been waiting for this moment. You know, for, for, he's probably fantasized about this in, in kind of, you know, his, his private moments. So he's 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 happy. Picking things uh, back up. Most of the neighborhood has decided to go out looking for possibly Martha Hoover's body if she is indeed dead. And while they're searching, Susan reveals that Mike has said I love you for the first time, to which there are squeals. And you sort of alluded to this earlier. They think that she's found the dead body. (laughs) And when it's revealed that she hasn't, Edie says, oh, Susan, she always finds a way to make it about her. It's just just the way Edie comes rushing out, like, over here, they found the body. Like, it's just the comic timing of this whole moment is perfect. And it's just, yeah, like that throwback to earlier at the kind of memorial, kind of with the detective. Well, not memorial, but, you know, kind of um, plea to to get Mrs. Huber back. It's just it's just perfect. It's also not lost on me that the person Edie is next to is Ida Greenberg, who will become a more central character later on in, in different seasons. But that Edie just always seems to be with someone much older than her, Martha Huber. Ida Greenberg. And that just plays into her complex relationships with not being able to cultivate female friendships. Yeah, yeah. Again, that that just reminder to us from, from the beginning, that kind of if the beginning acts as an overture for this episode, we're just constantly being reminded that she she lacks the the ability or the the wherewithal to just strike up friendships of her own age. And it's because of her her complex perceptions of relationships more generally i guess um yeah that is it's really interesting i'd not i kind of not paid attention to who she was with in that in that scene but yeah that's that's really good and while we talk about the many times that the character of Edie is villainized lots of sex shaming potentially problematic other issues that we delve into the character Edie may be glomming onto this idea that other women are going to be in competition with her for the affection of men. And so choosing to have these relationships with older women who are not going to compete with her. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's as good interpretation as any. I think that's definitely part of it, um, for sure. If she's keeping lots of equivalent aged, you know, attractive women around with her, then she's thinking maybe that's, you know, going to make things more difficult for me. Um, yeah, I think that's a very viable interpretation for sure across town at the mall gabby is doing the car demonstration and honestly i feel that i need to take back some of the shade i was throwing because this isn't really just a modeling job she's not just standing next to this car and vanna whiting it she's honestly acting as kind of a spokesperson for the car and if you've ever had to be in that position of buying or selling a car 
the person doing the selling of the car has to be pretty knowledgeable about the features of the car to sell it. And so whatever they're paying her, it should be more, I would think, than just sitting on a rock, which she's done in the past. And she might be getting more than she's bargained for here. Yeah, this flag to me, like she's the stuff she's talking about, like the, the ultrasonic rear view sensors or a reverse sensor, something, something along those lines. There's a lot of kind of specific jargon she's had to memorize or internalize, and she's not working for any cue cards here. And yeah, I think she's coming from a life of, of modeling privilege, like to suddenly have to do your homework on a, on a Buick lacrosse. Like, yeah, like this is a, this is a complicated gig to what she's used to doing. Um, and you know, whether that $300 a day is kind of covering the revision she might've had to have done. I don't know. <laughs> I also have questions about Gabby's dress. Is that possibly just a dress from Gabby's closet? It's very possible. She has nothing but haute couture and she's wearing it to this modeling demonstration. So did they have to buy the dress or did she have to supply it herself? I Again, I have so many questions because it feels like there's a lot of overhead for Gabby to be selling this car. And when she runs into Lynette and Tom, she won't fess up to the fact that she's there modeling and working. She says she's uh, just out shopping in a gown. Yeah, was it? This is Sarah, my shopping buddy. <laughs> just like, she's just like trying to get this the the tie and um, the the dress out. Like, come here, you bastard! <laughs> it just absolutely kills me. <laughs> and while Lynette does not seem to be buying any of this, she just disregards it. They allow her to have this farce that Gabby is out shopping in a gown. Yeah, they just they just talk to her like it's not happening. Like we'll just pretend that Sarah isn't there trying to trying to pull this this dress out of the of the rotisserie thing. Maybe that's the marker of a great friendship is allowing someone to be in denial or a straight up lie to you and you don't call them on it. Um you just let it be there. Yeah, and a lot of blind eyes get turned in this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Over sure. at the Vandicamps, Brie is also wearing a lovely dress because she's going out on that date <laughs> with George. When George arrives with flowers, Rex is there and he's annoyed and he's jealous. And Brie intentionally invites George in so they can have this encounter. And George is just bewildered. He says, I thought you were separated. And Brie says, oh, we are emotionally. He's only living here because his mistress refuses to care for him. Would you like anything to drink? <laughs> I mean, George's George's response, like, no, I'm fine. Like, if I was in that house, I couldn't get out of there fast enough, I don't think. Like, I would be terrified. Like, what have you brought me into? It also really makes me wonder where the kids are because this is also dishy. I just need to be at the top of the stairs with some popcorn and watching it all unfold. Yeah. Yeah, I have to I have to watch this unfold. Like Rex kind of watching him with this wry smile on his face, but also obviously really hurting that, that Bree's doing this and but then kind of in denial himself, you know, later when George sits on the sofa and saying she's just doing everything she can to get back at me and you know, he doesn't buy that maybe Bree does have some feelings for George, who knows? It really does make me feel badly for George, who's been really used by Brie and then made to be super uncomfortable in this situation. Rex is deplorable in the scene. He's so dismissive that his wife could ever be interested in George and tells George that Brie's only doing this to get back at him for his infidelity, which he grossly calls an extracurricular activity. Rex really just goes from showing this new genuine side a few scenes ago to being the same sarcastic ass that he has been the whole season so far. That's not nice. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, it's really, really kind of unpleasant and early and we kind of felt that that vulnerability from him. Now it's just like you have no remorse for your actions like so many people in this show. You know, it's just he's kind of reveling in it in a, in a kind of macho way with, with the fact that it's with George now and he's trying to kind of one-up him in, in terms of masculinity in some way. I don't know. Yeah, that's how I saw it. And then despite my best efforts to continue hating Rex, he does have a good line in there. A good chuckle when George says, have a, have a good night, Dr. Vandekamp. And Rex says, oh, please, you're dating my wife. Call me Rex. <laughs> Such an unbelievably good line. The writing is so tight there. I love that. Back at the mall with Lynette and Tom, apparently Tom and Lynette went to the mall to buy a hot water heater. And when Lynette remarks that the girl who sold it to them was so Tom's type, that she was curvy... Tom is not willing to say anything about the salesperson and Lynette 
blurts out that she knows that the only reason Tom made love to her the other night was because he had just seen Claire naked and she just drops that bomb right there. Yeah, Tom just, he doesn't even think about like trying to deny this or trying to backtrack. He just knows like Mia Culpa, she's got me banged to rights here. Like he knows he's in hot water. For Lynette, the fight seems to be more about the fact that Tom won't admit that he finds Claire attractive because Lynette says that they both had crushes before and they've always admitted it to one another, but it concerns her that Tom won't admit this one. And to pull on your Fraser heartstrings, I really see this as an Enemy of the Gates episode moment where Lynette and Tom are in the car, Lynette puts it into park, and she's going to sit there and block traffic until Tom admits that he is attracted to Claire. And it it um, strikes me that this is exactly what happened in the same episode of Frasier where Frasier and Niles are in the car and Frasier refuses to go anywhere until he gets the 20 minutes of parking he paid for. Completely. And then the woman comes to the window. It's like, my husband won't admit that he has lust in his heart. And like, yeah, there's so many resonances with, with Frasier. And I was also thinking, I don't know if you've watched the um, the US office, but there is a very equivalent episode where Pam is trying to get Jim to admit that he finds an intern attractive and just won't accept that he, he doesn't, though he does. Um, and it's just, yeah, there's just, there's just so much kind of, there's so many resonances sitcom wise here. Oh, the U.S. office. We could go on forever. So, yes, I do appreciate that. And I knew that you would appreciate this enemy at the gates moment there. Massively so. Over with Susan. They're calling this a piano bar. But in my notes, I wrote that it was a karaoke bar, uh, perhaps because it's um, their 15-year-old's birthday. It's more appropriate that it be a piano bar. But apparently, Carl has invited Edie as his date. And upon arrival, um, Edie gives Carl a passionate kiss for the birthday boy. But I am not sure that I buy that Edie really thinks it's Carl's birthday and that Carl invited her out on a double date with his ex-wife and daughter for his birthday rather than for Julie's birthday. Yeah, a kiss for the birthday boy. Edie, it's it's not his birthday. I mean, would would Carl maybe have told her that to, to lure her there under false pretenses? I don't know. I think it's a completely fair question to ask. Would she still have gone had she known that it was Julie's birthday? Yes, I think I think she would have. Anyway, I think it's all a ruse. But yes, I would like to know how that invitation was handled. How that went down. Would you like to go to a piano bar and my ex-wife will be there? I mean, like, how, what, what have you asked, Carl? I mean, how did this go down? <laughs> Yeah, my ex-wife with her new boyfriend that you kind of have a thing for? Yes, exactly. Like The, the, the cross-connections here are just endless. <laughs> At Breeze, we fast-forward through the date with George, and George is dropping her off. Both go in for a goodnight kiss, but they are interrupted by Andrew. And I was shocked by that, that Bree went in for the kiss. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That it's, it's kind of shocking. I don't know if maybe the way Rex was acting just before they left for the date has maybe soured Brie a little bit and kind of really emboldened her position to like, I'm going to live my own life and, and kind of by my own volition. Um, but yeah, Andrew kind of cropping up. He wasn't there at the top of the stairs earlier, but he's basically the equivalent now, popping up at the window and kind of really dampening the evening with his, his kind of judgment and yeah, general just his disposition is just unpleasant, I think. <laughs> And it becomes even more unpleasant if Andrew hadn't done enough to kill the mood by just showing up. The scene becomes even more heated as Andrew is angry that his mother is on a date. Andrew continues to antagonize Brie, asking if she's planning to have sex with George. And then Andrew questions George about having sex with Brie. And finally, Brie just shouts, no, because I don't commit adultery like your father. And the statement just sits there for a moment. So when Andrew finally does break the silence, he tells George to watch out for Bree because she's a liar, revealing that Andrew does not believe Bree. He does not believe that his father committed adultery. No, he doesn't. And like, it's just the dramatic irony. It's so frustrating because you kind of want Bree to say this to him all along so that Andrew gets this chip off his shoulder and this kind of, he's always got this protectiveness over Rex. And yeah, even even when she comes out with this, yeah, his immediate, his immediate default position is to never trust Bree, basically. And like that, that's hard for us to watch because we come to like Bree a lot. 
Absolutely. And I don't discount the relationship between a father and a son in that I don't necessarily understand what it means to be either because I'm not a father or a son, but I do know the relationship between a mother and a daughter and the complexity in seeing yourself modeled in your same gender parent as I was and, and am very protective of my mother. And I wonder if there's a certain gender allegiance here that yeah. Andrew has for his father at the expense of his mother. Yeah, no, definitely. I think those kinds of familial relations are definitely explored in, in the show more generally. Um, obviously, we see a lot of that in this episode too. So yeah, I think that's fair. Over at Gabby's house, potentially empowering moment where Gabby has all the bills laid out on the floor and she's trying to figure out how she's going to do this. She already has a job. She's making calculations and the lights are <laughs> Yeah. And as she's calling the lawyer, I almost expected her phone to stop working. Yeah, like it is so it's so frustrating to see her kind of like making it on her own and then suddenly it's like, right, I need I need Carlos out. I need I need the money back, you know. Yeah. So it's a call to the lawyer that maybe I know where the passport is after all, and we'll see the half burnt passport yeah. that um that she's retrieved. Meanwhile, back at the piano bar, we have Mike and Susan cuddling and Edie singing. And Carl's trying to bait Susan into singing. And Susan does not relent until Mike asks her to do it. And then she's willing to do so. Yeah, there's something about Carl's delivery of like, come on, we're among friends. That I don't know, just the way he says it really made me laugh. Like, it's just that, again, that kind of buffoonery of Carl. And he's kind of smarmy in, a, in an endearing way. Like, you just want to hear whatever crap comes out of his mouth next. Um, but yeah, I like the fact that she baits him by like, it's Mike wanting to hear a sing that's going to get her up on stage. You know, it's not Carl, um, which I like. Yes, yes. She has to do the opposite of what Carl says and do what Mike says in order to prove that Carl doesn't get to her. So it's this condescending moment where Carl says, give it up, plumber. She's not going to do it. And that's what inspires her to do it, just so she can prove Carl wrong and prove that Carl has no effect on her, which is ironic because... This is having an effect on her. Yeah, it's kind of double jeopardy. Um, and she picks New York, New York. I mean, is that, do we think that's a safe number or is that quite a bold a bold number to go up and sing? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I love the song, but I'm not sure vocally, like whether that's playing it safe or really kind of, you know, deep end. Mm, if know. Amanda were here, she would be able to tell us of the difficulty of that number. So she'll be sad she missed this. Uh, well, you'll have to let me know what she says. However, as we're waiting for Susan's number, we learn <laughs> that apparently Brandy was not the only indiscretion that Carl had while he was married to Susan. According to Edie, Carl felt her up under the mistletoe at the Henderson's Christmas party. And Susan is visibly affected as she goes up to sing New York, New York, and then proceeds to sing it while also hurling insults at Carl. And I'm not sure if she thinks that those are asides that nobody else can hear, but she's just so overcome with her anger that as she's singing to the left of her, she then turns to Carl on the right of her and has it out with him amid song. <laughs> And it's a little hard to express in words. You just have to see it and experience it for yourself. But the scene is just so well blocked. It's hysterical. Yeah, I, th I think that like first one, like the, you're an ass, you know that. It does have the quality of, of an aside. So it's like maybe she's getting away with it. But then the piano player just stops immediately. She's like, no, keep playing. Um, and then eventually she just like, she just takes the mic out of the stand. She's like, these aren't asides anymore. This is the only reason I'm up here is to bring you to justice. And I just love the way that it kind of devolves into this slinging match. <laughs> the lyrics may not be right up to par with... Um let's all go to a taco show, which is what Frazier says in Take a Leap. And he forgets <laughs> the words while singing. Truly iconic lyricism. <laughs> uh, anybody who doesn't watch Frasier is missing out because these references are worth it. That was a good reference. And before we close off with Susan, I just love that she says, I swear it will snow on the, on the hills of hell before I ever feel sorry for you again. <laughs> I know, so specific, and it's like geography of hell. I don't know, it's a really visceral image. <laughs> and there's alliteration. I love it. I think it all works. There's a night, yeah, there's a night, yeah, exactly. It's got like a, a poetic quality to it, I think. 
Over at Paul's house, he is concerned that the investigation into Mrs. Hoover's body is going to implicate him. So he goes back out to her gravesite where he buried her to get some of her jewelry and plants it in Mike's garage. Yeah, this is a really kind of like dramatic moment, I think. We see the garage door, we see the pan to Mike's letterbox and, you know, yeah, things are really starting to to move in the machinery of, of Desperate Housewives now, I think. And I really love that we're in on it because we know Mike didn't do it. We know Paul did. And we can root for Susan and Mike to work out knowing that Mike is innocent. Yeah, not many bigger obstacles I can think of than being implicated for murder either. So it's like, it's the ultimate relationship test, I think. I've been a bit critical of Susan because I don't think she's doing everything she can to make sure that she doesn't end up sleeping next to an axe murderer. She did agree to go on a weekend with him, even though she found a gun and money. But we all need to get out of the house and the (laughs) dating pool must be pretty shallow. Over at Tom and Lynette's, Claire is doing a fantastic job. She's going to make an appointment for Parker's post-nasal drip, and then she needs to clean the table. And it's almost this gratuitous way that she's cleaning the table and Tom is peering down her shirt as she's cleaning. And it's almost reminiscent of like a porn video. And Tom Mm. says they're going to have to make some staffing changes. (laughs) he just looks so downbeat and i think lynette's the way she kind of clocks his eyes and when she's moving her head like just this whole scene although tom is being a massive lech it's just comically like so so good and it is really problematic because claire didn't do anything wrong and she's going to lose her job i think she's well within her right to say why you're getting rid of me because you find me attractive like this isn't legal grounds for for dismissal you know I'd, I'd have a, I'd have quite a few bones to pick if I were Claire. And I think Claire would have an excellent case. So I hope Lynette mm. and Tom have their checkbooks handy. Let's hope she's litigious. <laughs> Back at Breeze, Andrew has completely changed. He sees Bree carrying boxes and he, he says, let me help you with that. And he confirms that he's spoken to Rex and Rex has admitted to his unfaithfulness. And Andrew now wants to know why Bree is willing to take care of him. And if it's because Andrew basically forced her to, he says, don't worry about it. All is forgiven. I'll help you throw his stuff out myself. And Bree says no, that she needs to take care of Rex because it's the right thing to do. And Andrew is just bewildered. He he says, we're finally on the same side, Mom. I think Dad's an ass too. And Bree will not let him disparage Rex in front of her. She says that he gave her the best 18-year marriage she could have asked for. And when he, when Andrew is in her presence, she needs to he needs to respect his father. Yeah, this is exactly like what we spoke about at the beginning of the episode when she's um, kind of not giving Andrew what we want her to say because she is so house-proud and kind of... I guess she's internalized this misogynistic domestic environment that she's been in for all her years that she feels this this obligation in some way even though all the grounds that were supporting that have been completely you know washed away with rex's infidelity so um yeah there's still an element of pride and and kind of nobility to brie here um which is commendable i think in the fate in in the in the wake of what she's faced and i think the moment is made even more poignant when we pan over and see that rex has heard this entire exchange yeah, for sure. And I think the way he was acting with George, we're kind of glad that he's heard this in some ways because he was really out of line, I think. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's it seems to really be what Rex needs. We call it on this podcast, Rex is a tool toolbox and we just keep adding tools and he has just been taken down a peg. And there is a vulnerability that we now see again. Really we saw it at line, the beginning of the episode yeah. and it was refreshing. Yeah. Uh, Over at Susan's, she has another visit from Carl. Yet another visit from Carl. I think she's gotten her Carl visit quotas in for the entire season in just one episode. And she comes to the door and says, what is it? I'm really busy. To which Carl says, I came to apologize. And she says, well, in that case, come on in. I got plenty of time for that. (laughs) I love that. 
<laughs> I love that so much. I also thought you might appreciate that in another reference to Fraser, more specifically Niles, um, Carl has a sweater jauntily tied around one's neck. So is one about to get the crap beat out of one? <laughs> I didn't clock what jump we had on, but I love that. I love that so much. I mean, he looks like he just stepped out of a J. Crew catalog, and I don't want him dressed like Niles in this scene. He's a buffoon. I want him dressed in bad jeans and a Homer Simpson t-shirt all the time. Yeah, he needs like a dunce cap on at all times, I think. Like a, a jumper jauntily tied around his shoulders is just too charitable for, for what a, kind of a person he is. So Carl, you know, he said he came to apologize, but he starts off with, you know, I understand why you're dating the plumber. <laughs> um, after being with me, he must seem like a really safe choice because Carl's so exciting. And it's it's just so demeaning. It's so problematic that he feels so superior to Mike. Yeah, I think this is the kind of this is this is kind of a throwback to when they're at the piano bar as well. And he kind of calls Mike like he's a bit Buster Brown. Like this is kind of the second barb he's getting in about Mike. And he's kind of more, you know, and I, I don't think Mike comes across as a really safe, boring person. I mean, maybe if you've just seen him fixing a sink. But if you know Mike Dalvino, like that isn't what he is. And he makes Carl look like very small by comparison. So I think there's the irony here is just Carl has such a huge opinion of himself. Um, and that's where the comedy lies. And he's been here all this time and I still haven't heard the apology. And that was the only reason she let him in the door. Uh, nonetheless, it seems that the reason he might have a sweater <laughs> jauntily tied around one's neck is that he's back to woo Susan. He wants to get back together with Susan. And Susan says, Wow, I've wanted you to say that forever. And now I know there is nothing there. She feels nothing as he's pouring his heart out to her. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, this is so wonderful. It's like, I want to kiss you. Like the way he says that, like he's so certain she feels the same. And she's just completely like, I need to get across the road right now. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's kind of the ultimate put down for Carl, which he's just had coming since this episode began, I think. Ultimately, this is what inspires Susan to finally be able to return the I love you that Mike gave to her earlier. So in what is just adding further fuel to an already unrealistic expectation that if you take your hair down from a ponytail at any given time, your hair will just look like you've had a $90 blowout. Um, Susan runs across <laughs> the street, drops her towel, drops her spray bottle cleaner and gives Mike a huge hug and tells him that she loves him. And while this is such a happy ending, I do somehow wonder um, if Mike would feel the same if Susan said that what inspired him to return Mike's I love you is Carl groveling at Susan's feet to reconcile with him. But, but nonetheless, yes, Susan is sure she loves Mike. Yeah, and I wonder how Mike would respond, like knowing that that was the impetus behind her decision after those comments earlier that we intimated might have been born from jealousy a little bit. Like, would he have been as quick to embrace her in front of detectives if he knew? Maybe this is a little bit of kind of, yeah, X complication. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting to see what he would have made of that had he known. And she's been so distracted by her love for him that she's failed to see him there. And two extra people in Mike's home, a police officer and a detective, it looks like. And she says, you can go ahead and write that down in your little book that I love him. And she just continues to kiss Mike. It's no big deal that other people are here. And Mike says, yeah, they're here to talk about Mrs. Huber's death. And she's like, oh, that's just yeah. great. And she just keeps kissing him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's committed to the task. <laughs> So as we close out, we have Mary Alice's final words that we're all looking for that special someone who will provide us what is missing in our lives. Some to offer companionship, and we see Brie calling George for another date or assistance, and we see Lynette who's on the phone looking for an experienced but preferably unattractive nanny. Yeah, it's just... You see you got a Tom Wince in the background. It's just a horrible moment. It really is. Or for security, and we see Gabby with Carlos's burned passport. And sometimes if we search very hard, we can find someone who provides us with all three. And that's when we see Susan and Mike on the phone, again, exchanging their I love yous. 
and Mary Alice saying, yes, we're all searching for someone, and if we can't find them, we can only pray that they find us, as we see a dog and a jogger discovering Martha Hoover's Hoover's body. Yeah, the lasting image of her kind of dirt-covered hand reaching out of the soil is a real kind of, yeah, gothic way to end the episode, I think, but very fitting. (laughs) Yes, so, so very fitting. Um, Well, again, Will, thank you so much for doing this. It has been a pleasure to host you, and you can come back anytime you want. No, it's been so lovely. This has just really fueled the fire that I need to get back onto Desperate Housewives and finish the series. Um, But no, thank you for inviting me. And yeah, hopefully I've I've done this wonderful podcast justice with my very limited observations about this episode. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Um, Next week, we are headed to Every Day, A Little Death. And until then, I'm Rachel. And I am Will. And thank you for listening to Noisy Fulfillment. See you next time.